Welcome to the Cultivating Leaders podcast from the Minnesota South District. I'm your host, Billy Schultz. Today, we have the first part of a two-part episode with Dr. Jim Marriott of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Our conversation is going to be uh, around worship and taking a step back from our typical contemporary versus traditional conversations and approaching the topic of worship in our congregations from a new perspective. We hope that whether you're a uh, roster worker or layperson, whether you're involved with worship uh, music or serving in some way, or whether you're just uh, someone who sits in the pew faithfully every Sunday, that this conversation would be beneficial to you as you think about worship and that you might take away something new from it, or you might have more questions, uh, but that this podcast episode uh, would be a blessing to you. Today with us, we have Dr. Jim Marriott, who serves Concordia Seminary St. Louis as their Director of Musical Arts. Uh, Jim's going to be with us today to talk about liturgy and discipleship, how they work together, and uh, we're excited to have him here. It's really an honor. Thank you so much, Billy, and uh, thanks for the ministry that you do uh, in your district. Yeah, thank you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, how you've uh, served the church and uh, worship arts and music, and uh, what your current role is at the seminary? Sure. So every um, every family member on my mom's side of the family is either a pastor or a church musician uh, in some denomination of the church. And so I come from a long, uh, long line of pastors and church musicians and uh, always knew that I wanted to be involved in church ministry over the course of my life. Um, and uh, I started piano lessons when I was four, organ lessons when I was a freshman in high school, had my first every Sunday organ job when I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, it just kind of grew from there. I studied at Concordia um, University in Nebraska, and then also did my master's at Concordia, Wisconsin, and just finished my PhD at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston. I've served a number of churches. I served at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Jacksonville Beach, Florida, um, in music ministry there, um, a music ministry and teaching role at St. John Lutheran Church in Rochester, Michigan, and then um, also music ministry and uh, quite a bit of administration at Trinity Lutheran Church in Lyle, Illinois. So I've had um, three very uh, distinct church experiences um, where I've been able to serve and to grow as well, and I feel very blessed by those opportunities that I've had. As I kind of navigated through those churches and the different places where I've studied, I, you know, I've always come up against this contemporary versus traditional worship issue. I don't know if you've heard anything about that or the church's, uh, church's struggles with that. And uh, through the course of my ministry, I started to try to ask um, a different set of questions about our worship practices um, and really, that was the the impetus for um, my trajectory of my dissertation to kind of look at worship practice in the LCMS over the last fifty years, uh, and to look at it through um, a couple of different lenses. I ended up minoring in uh, liturgical enculturation, which is very interested in the intersection of worship practice and culture. Um, And oftentimes those are conversations that happen between West and non-West contexts. You know, how would we uh, take the gospel and uh, enliven worship in Africa or what would African worship look like or, you know, just as an example. Um, And I really tried to uh, apply a lot of the principles of that into the conversations that have happened in the United States and especially in the LCMS in the United States over the last 50 years. 
um, that really led me um, to, to look at where we are the same. You know, so many of our worship conversations are about where we are different and how um, contemporary and traditional are different. And I'm really looking to foster a different conversation that is looking at where we're the same and where we're after the same type of thing. Um, and, uh, that's really where my dissertation lands and where a lot of my teaching at the seminary begins, because we have a vast array of students at the seminary from lots of different places and lots of different ministry contexts. And, um, if I can get them all asking similar questions, uh, about liturgy and discipleship, uh, then I, I think that the church has a really bright future in terms of these worship conversations. That's very true. And you actually model that in a lot of ways, too, with with your work at the seminary and the music that you um, help lead and the, the types of things that happen in, in the chapel services and the other uh, services there. Right. Exactly. That's uh, one of my favorite things about serving at the seminary is um, we have a vast array of uh, musical influences and instrumentation that we use, um, all very faithful to the gospel and to a clear proclamation of the gospel. Um, we prioritize involving our students in worship. We have a student organist, a student pianist, a, a student a guitarist and percussionist that play uh, quite frequently. We foster original songs that are written and used in worship a number of times. And, and uh, so really we um, try to do as many things as possible to get student involvement as well. We're doing a number of multilingual things this year. Mm. Um, we uh, have even been experimenting with um, intentional multi-ethnic orders of service um, uh, to be fostering this multi-ethnic and intercultural conversation and worship as well. So it is very a uh, fun place to serve, lots of musical resources and a lot of diversity for sure. That's so cool to hear about. So, so going to your your topic in your dissertation and understanding the connections between liturgy and discipleship. Um, where do you start with that? How do you tackle such a big, broad topic and, and what is, where does that lead? Yeah, I guess the, the, maybe the simplest way to start is to, to talk about what is meant by liturgy. Um, uh, one of my favorite liturgical theologians, uh, his name is Aidan Kavanaugh, and he talks about liturgy being the world done right. And uh, I just love kind of the simplicity of that idea that uh, Christian liturgy is the world done right. So often when we think of liturgy, we think of um, maybe page 5 and 15 of uh, Lutheran lore, you know, uh, the Lutheran hymnal 1941 and uh, um, the legacy that the common service has been for Lutherans uh, for many generations. Uh, we think of that as liturgy, as maybe a fixed order of service. And really, liturgy is is so much bigger, especially through this um, this Kavanaugh way of, of looking at liturgy, that liturgy is much more about our performance of faith, um, that our liturgical life is actually focused on how we do the world, how we perform the world. Uh, now, that's, that is a very different way of talking about liturgy, um, but that's the language that I'm starting to use in the classroom and then in different presentations when I go around and get to speak in different places. So uh, liturgy then, um, as the performance of faith, you know, already that makes a lot of people uncomfortable in a lot of different ways. So it needs to be unpacked a bit. Um, first, the idea of performance. 
really keys in on modern day ritual studies and kind of the resurgence of ritual studies in the social sciences that really um, anchors both our knowledge base as humans and also our participation in creation as a ritual act. Uh, James Smith does quite a bit with this, um, uh, talking about how we navigate the world kind of by feel more than by this cognitive way of um, uh, thinking our way through the world. Uh, And I really love the difference there. We're so conditioned to think our way through the world, and yet we really feel our way through the world um, on the most basic ritual level. Uh, Things that are as simple as our daily routine and our rituals and habits that we have, it's our habits that actually condition how we Um, what we believe, what we think, and how we feel. Uh, Whereas we think that we can control our habits, it's actually our habits that control us. So liturgy is a performance. Um, It is the performance of rituals and habits that are aimed towards a particular goal or a particular end. Um, so even that idea of performance, you know, especially in uh, recent worship conversations has been very uncomfortable because we, we have assumptions that we make about the idea of performance. And yet, if you think about every act of the Christian life, and especially our actions as we come together as the body of Christ gathered on Sunday morning, let's say, Those are all performances. The pastor is performing as he preaches. We are performing as we sing and as we pray. We're performing as we extend hospitality to one another. Um, So there are all of these different performances that are happening in our rituals and in our habits that actually are informing our theology much more than our theology informing our rituals. So liturgy is a performance. Um, And then this idea of faith. If liturgy is a performance of our faith, uh, the idea of faith starts, we as Lutherans confess, with the work of the Holy Spirit. This is um, Luther's explanation to the third article of the Creed. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. And that what the Spirit has done for me, the Spirit does for the whole church on earth. That's an amazing confession of faith that we make as Lutherans. Uh, wonderful gifts that Luther has, uh, words that Luther has left us with as gift for how we navigate church. So liturgy is a performance of faith, and that faith is created and sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit in the Word. So we have this cyclical um, uh, contour of behavior that happens, where the Spirit acts into us as church, and we in in, in turn perform our faith as witness to the world. One thing that's um, very important about that construct 
is it reorients our focus as Christians, and especially as we come towards Christian worship. If liturgy is the performance of our faith, and that performance is enlivened by the Holy Spirit, then our worship practices on Sunday morning have much less to do with Sunday morning and much more with actually performing or doing the world rightly. And this is one of the... um, Uh, most exciting and profound truths of the Christian witness is that we, as the body of Christ, bearing the Holy Spirit who creates and sustains faith in us, we are enabled to be the redeemed world. Now, we do that in a broken way. We live in this saint-sinner dichotomy, you know, or interdependent Uh, reality, I suppose you would say. And we live in a now not yet tension that we live the redemption and the kingdom now, even as we wait for its fulfillment. But right now, the Christian church is the world done right. It is the closest that we can get to being um, the witness of God's redemption in this world. It's not our work. It's our telling of God's story. And that's what um, that's where I start with liturgy as the performance of faith. So you start with this idea, knowing kind of the whole scope of of God's work from creation to fall to then redemption, and then uh, Christ's second coming and the the culmination of all things in the new heavens and new earth. Um, what does that mean for us then as we, as we think about our worship practices and how we, how we live out this, this world done right, but this world not yet either? Exactly. Great. So it, it all starts with story. And uh, the notion of story is another thing that has been revived and enlivened in um, both recent theological conversations and also in a lot of um, uh, postmodern hermeneutics and uh, a lot of the trajectory and momentum of the social sciences as well. This idea of living out a story. So we are people of God's story. And, and as Christians, we believe, teach, and profess, and we live that um, we are created, that the world is fallen, that the world is broken in sin, that God promised redemption through Jesus Christ, that that redemption was enacted by Christ who lived, died, and was resurrected for us, um, that we now, by the power of the Holy Spirit through Pentecost, are enlivened as church to live as witness for the world. So we have the story that we tell by the Spirit's working through us. That is our performance of faith. Our performance of faith is God's story. So our liturgy is the enactment of God's story, just as you were you were suggesting there. And so that um, our worship practices then are the telling of that story. Everything that we do as church tells that story, narrates that story, um, and it does it as community for the sake of the world. So I kind of have, um, and maybe you'll post this um, on uh, uh, this PowerPoint uh, if you get the chance, um, but this this idea of kind of a threefold um, 
interrelated system for talking about uh, liturgy as performance of faith, that it starts with story. It starts with our participation by the Spirit's power in God's narrative. That's this divine narrative of which the church is called into. And we as Lutherans believe, teach, and confess that word and sacrament are the external markers of that story, of that performance. Not all Christians profess it this way, and we um, love and respect our brothers and sisters in Christ who enact this differently. But we as Lutherans, this is where we we, um, anchor in, and this is from the scriptural narrative, from the institution of Christ, or what Christ has instituted for us, that it is word and our performance and enactment of word and the sacraments, specifically baptism and the Lord's Supper, that um, are our participation in this story. They are the external markers of that story. That um, word and sacrament then, as the external markers of that story, are then enacted through various rites and ceremonies. So you have now an interdependent trajectory from the story to our rites and ceremonies. And that is what our liturgy is, is this interdependent web of various practices that narrate a story. Whereas many, um, at least in the conversations that I've had in liturgy over the course of my career, many um, people seem to define liturgy in that rites and ceremonies category, that our liturgy is those rites and are those rites and ceremonies. You know, that's where we get the, our liturgy is page five and 15, or Mm -hmm. our liturgy for this morning is divine service one, you know, uh, or divine service setting one from the hymn, depending on which hymnal you have. Um, Those are all rites and ceremonies that are the enactment of a story. But they are not in and of themselves liturgy. And that's an important distinction. Um, The same for word and sacrament. So often word and sacrament get localized to, you know, let's say um, our worship practices on Sunday morning. And often I'll generalize it as 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, you know, that we have this hour a week where we do word and sacrament, and that's supposed to fill us up for the whole week and uh, help us to survive till we get back there next Sunday for our word and sacrament fix. And when you localize word and sacrament to an hour on Sunday, you end up robbing the church of its very life. Um, If we are living and performing our faith 24-7, if we are doing the world rightly, then word and sacrament as the external markers of the church must be something that happened 24-7. We're really good on that with our baptismal theology. Um, We believe that we are baptized. It's not that we were baptized once a long time ago. We are baptized and we daily live out that baptism. The same is true for our living out of baptism. the forgiveness, life, and salvation that we receive in the Lord's Supper. You know, we are the body of Christ. We receive the body and blood of Christ in order to be the body of Christ in the world. That's the whole trajectory of what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. And if we have these promises of forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation, which the Holy Spirit makes efficacious through the Word, this is what our confession is, then that is something that is 24-7 for us. We live that out 
every moment of our existence. That is how we live out the story. Um, We live out God's promises of redemption through Jesus Christ, and we live out the promises of forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation that we receive in the sacraments. Um, So that's, that's the interrelated nature of the divine narrative, word and sacrament, and our rites and ceremonies. Great. So as we think about this interrelated um, connection between um, our rites and ceremonies that inform uh, living out of word and sacraments, pointing to this divine narrative, a lot of people be asking questions probably about, you know, how do we make sure that then we do rites and ceremonies that are true to who we are as, as Christians, uh, most certainly, but also as Lutherans, how do we make sure that we're, we're maintaining a certain orthodoxy that we would see consistent with scripture and the confessions? What is, what does that mean? How do we, how do we live that out? How do we achieve that in our worship practices? Exactly right. Um, and, and that is the, the next logical question is to, to try and, recognize that our rites and ceremonies will be diverse um, and will be culturally and contextually conditioned. And yet the story is the same in every place and time. Like we, we as the church are telling a consistent story. And so there will be some continuity of practices through the church in every time and place And there will be some contextualization or some cultural conditioning that happen at every time and place. When it especially comes down to that human behavior, our rites and ceremonies, um, where there is a clear interaction of human behavior and God's work, um, you know, a very incarnational material type thing, Uh, the songs that we sing, the language that we use in worship, um, the architecture that we employ, the art that we decorate with, all of these different things that are clear intersections of uh, materiality, um, all of those are culturally conditioned and always have been. The church has always drawn upon the riches of various cultural contexts um, in order to enliven and tell that story in a way that is, I don't know if relevant is the best word, but just That's definitely very, a buzzword, <laughs> yeah, it's a, and, which is why it's probably better to avoid relevant, but in a way that is, um, uh, very conversant, I guess, mm-hmm. with the uh, with the daily life of the Christian. And again, if we think about this, that our Christianity is daily life, then there should be some continuity with our daily life and the practices that we employ on Sunday morning. Um, if there's not, we have a big problem. Um, that you know, then church becomes totally divorced from daily life. And we create the, uh, a really ugly cycle of, you know, just doing our hour on Sunday and getting the check in the box and then going and doing whatever else we want through the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. So there must be continuity. So, so um, we do have rites and ceremonies that are in continuity with our, um, with our cultural context. At the same time, we do have to measure those through a lens of um, ritual and theological orthodoxy. 
And, and this is an important conversation because um, we can't just do whatever we want, um, especially if we are doing things that speak against that narrative or that speak outside of the external markers of word and sacrament. So we have to have um, various measures um, and anchors in place that help us navigate our orthodoxy. And we have those. Um, we have scripture um, and we have the clear witness of scripture um, as uh, um, the very word of God. And, and, and that is a, a clear anchor for us. The church also believes and uh, teaches and confesses, confesses the ecumenical creeds. And those become a very important um, uh, anchor for us and for the Christian faith uh, as it is articulated throughout the world. Now, some might argue um, you know, there's no end to contextuality. It's not like um, uh, there are very few things that are universal and there is nothing that we have that is completely separated from culture. So even reading scripture in English is um, already putting some kind of human um, element to the word itself. And there are, you know, um, differences reading scripture in Greek um, in its original language versus reading it in English. I mean, this is uh, basic hermeneutics. And even more, we as English, you know, normatively English speakers, even reading into Greek, bring a different set of cultural assumptions into the language from our own conditioning. So you can always chase down some of these contextual influences, and nothing is ever purely universal or purely transcultural. Everything has a cultural base. Um, but we have these anchors that more or less serve um, as pretty good uh, structures for us as the church. Um, one of my biggest influences in my, uh, in my doctoral studies was uh, a man named Robert Schreider, and he talked about this as a type of grammar, um, that these anchors function as grammar in a language system. So if you think about grammar, uh, grammar governs and guides better or worse performances of a language system. Grammar is kind of the red pen that is grading and evaluating good um, or let's say better or worse performances in a language system. And that's important. You want to have good grammar so that you can make um, better performances of a language system. But as we have seen, especially through you know uh, texting or even emojis at this point, you can make a very authentic performance in a language system with very bad grammar. Mm -hmm. And so we have to account for the idea that Authenticity and orthodoxy aren't always the same, uh, even though that doesn't cause us to settle. So I, you know, the way I illustrate this most effectively is through a video that I use of my daughter, um, and I'm going to give you a chance to listen to that right now. Well, 
So if you if you followed what she was saying there, you'll notice that her um, what she's singing. I'll give you the translation. It's Holy Christ, the President of the World. Alleluia. And if you uh, um, let me explain the context of it a little bit. She was four years old at the time, and we were homeschooling her, and she was coming to chapel at the seminary on a daily basis. So she was getting to see all of the ritual performances at chapel and kind of interacting with the language that we use in chapel, um, some of the behaviors, you know, standing up, holding a bulletin, holding a hymnal. Um, This particular day, if you notice, she's wearing patriotic red, white, and blue attire. Um, After chapel, we went down to our local local elementary school where my son was in the second grade and participating in a patriotic performance. And the patriotic performance had to do with presidents, and so they had songs that they sang and little readings that they had and different rituals that they enacted in this uh, uh, in this particular presentation. And so then my daughter, that afternoon, was playing in our living room, and she was playing out all of these different rituals, trying to piece them together in a way that made sense to her. And thus you get this performance— Holy Christ, the president of the world, alleluia. So when I use this in our classes, uh, my classes at the seminary uh, with my students, I ask them, is that an orthodox confession of the Christian faith? And the answer, of course, is no. That's, it's, you know, uh, not an orthodox confession of faith to proclaim Christ as the president of the world. But it is an authentic performance of her faith. She is navigating through various types of language in order to express what she believes and how she enacts and performs this faith. So at this moment, you know, when I uh, walked in and saw this, I, I had a couple of options. I could have run in and quickly corrected her and said, no, 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 honey. Jesus and the president are very different, and you need to understand this. You're making a heterodox confession of faith, and I I need you to repent so that you can be clear and uh, um, uh, orthodox in your confession of faith. Uh, I chose not to do that. Um, Instead, I chose to video her, and now I use this video in all of my classes, and I'm sure I'll use it at her wedding. And uh, I tell her every time I'm going to use it, and she gets a big smile on her face. (laughs) Now, we've, we've had conversations since then about who Jesus is and how Jesus is different from the president. So it didn't stop with that particular performance of faith. Rather, that performance of faith is part of an ongoing journey in our authentic and orthodox confession of faith. So um, orthodoxy as grammar governs and guides better and worse performances of the Christian faith. But we have to acknowledge that there can be authentic performances of the Christian faith that are not fully orthodox. And therein lies the tension. It doesn't mean that we're okay with things, things being unorthodox. It's more an acknowledgement that most of our practices— as human beings who live in this saint-centered, you know, kind of duality, who live in this now-not-yet tension, we are constantly living in and among the mess of the world. And I don't know about you, Billy, but I contribute to that mess 
every moment of every day. And so the, the measure that I use for ortho, orthodoxy must recognize my broken and feeble attempts to perform my faith by the power of the Holy Spirit to the best of my ability. So I think, you know, not speaking for God, but through the eyes of God, I, I wonder if God sees most of our practices as church in the world as I, as a father, saw my daughter. Just the cutest possible thing ever. <laughs> Holy Christ, the president of the world, alleluia. How darling is that? It's not quite right, but it's a, it's a very good attempt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and let's talk about it and let's journey on. So we thank Dr. Marriott for being with us and for sharing his thoughts on worship and discipleship. Um, we're going to continue this conversation next week, uh, talking about uh, music and worship, some of our models for worship, uh, some of our practices, and, and what the relationship is between culture and the church and how that plays out in worship settings. So thank you for listening to this episode of Cultivating Leaders and have a blessed day. 